Welcome to Podcasting with the President. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Hopi, President of Merrimack College. In this episode of Podcasting with the President, Deborah Michaels, Assistant Professor and Director of the Women and Gender Studies Department, joined me to discuss her research in women's entrepreneurship and life as a professor at Merrimack College. Our conversation focused on her personal experiences as a lead researcher in the field, a new book Michaels is currently working on titled She's the Boss, The Rise of Women's Entrepreneurship Since World War II, and a few upcoming projects, including Work for Women Histories Month and the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. I hope you enjoy this very interesting podcast. Well, this is Christopher Hopi, President of Merrimack College, and welcome to the podcast with the President. Um, and a happy new year, 2020. I'm here today with uh, one of our associate professors, uh, Deborah Michaels. Uh, of the Women's Studies Department. Deb, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. You know, I want to talk a little bit today about your, your research work. You have some fascinating topics, some areas you work on, and just a little bit more broadly about women's studies and where the world's going and, and how you see it. So uh, so just for our listeners, mostly alumni and others of the college, but but give us a little summary of your, your research areas, especially around entrepreneurship, women, and leadership. Exactly. So that's, that is my that is my topic. I look at the rise of the woman entrepreneur in the United States since World War II. Um, and really looking at um, where did all these women come from? Why is entrepreneurship so attractive to women of all races, of all classes, of all genders? Um, and how has it been sh um, shaped by various social movements as well as a sort of, I'm really fascinated by the intersection of, of feminism and capitalism um, and how these two things that should not go together come together in ways that help to advance um, opportunities for women in the business world. Tell me a little bit about the, you know, the last 50 years? How has it changed for women in business as entrepreneurs, as business owners? What, what has been the, the kind of the major couple trends that have changed over time? Okay, there's a lot of things that have happened. So at the end of World War II, there were probably, I don't know, maybe about a half a million women entrepreneurs in the United States. And now, um, and they, they owned a very small, maybe 1% of all the businesses. Women today own about 40% of all small businesses nationwide. So that's an enormous change. Most of that growth came after the 1970s. But there's a lot of growth that we see, for example, in um, the 1950s when women are being told to go home and be mothers. They're being mothers who have side businesses to help support the family, and they're doing it in the language of family. In the 60s, with all the activism and the rise in the divorce rates, you have a lot more women going into business to take care of their families. And you have civil rights leaders who um, see in business an opportunity to empower people um, who can't get that same empowerment in the system. The women's movement does the same thing. They say, well, if the system won't make room for women, if we're discriminated against, we'll opt out, start businesses of our own, and then get back in as entrepreneurs. Um, and of course, by the 1980s, when you have legislative changes like the Equal Credit Act, that makes it possible for women to borrow money on the same level and not be asked about their, you know, child-rearing plans, their birth control practices, or their, you know, marriage um, opportunities. You then see a real search um, in women's entrepreneurship. And, and frankly, I mean, the 80s was a very go-go decade for all kinds of growth economically, and that's a big de decade for women's entrepreneurship. And where is it today, and where do you think it's going? A lot of people thought the internet would be this great sort of playing leveling leveling the playing field for people that um, women could start businesses um, online because it doesn't take a lot of capital and the way and women don't have access to capital the way that men do. I mean, most women start businesses with credit cards, um, but it it 
was kind of a mixed bag, the internet, because internet businesses are actually not that cheap to start. It costs a lot of money to create a website. Um, so in some ways, it wasn't the great leveler. In other ways, it created categories like mompreneur, which is a term I do not like, but it's the term that is out there. Um, you know, stay-at-home moms who create websites and businesses from that. Um, millennials who are very interested in um, social entrepreneurship, which I think there's a lot um, not, right now talking about not just being in business, but doing business as a way of giving back. And that really comes out of the stuff that was happening in the 60s and 70s. That's what civil rights and feminist activists wanted to do. They wanted business that was more than just a way of making money, but a way of changing the world. I think we're seeing those trends come back. Um, I actually think that some of the problems that retail is having today, um, in terms of people don't go to stores anymore, right? Everybody buys things online. I think that there are lessons to be learned in solving the problem of retail by looking at what activist entrepreneurs did, which and, and even I think social entrepreneurs are doing today, which is not just creating a business to make money, but creating a space people want to go to. So in the 70s, feminists created bookstores that were also community centers, hangout spaces, pla you know, places to engage. I think that we can find the future solutions to business today the problems of business today in looking at these kinds of innovative entrepreneurial spaces that were that did double duty as community spaces. Um, now, talk a little bit about um, you know uh, different women that have you know I think one that comes to mind is Oprah, right? I mean the the super billionaire, you know uh, the ultimate entrepreneur in a thousand different ways. But but that's not the only story, right? I mean there's a lot of stories. But who are some women that in your mind um, are models? for a future woman, future young girls that are growing up going forward? That's a really good question. Um, there's a lot of things that women did that people don't know women did. So the famous one I like to talk about in my classes is the example of um, uh, Bette Nesmith Graham, who um, was the woman who invented whiteout or liquid paper, right? Yeah. And she did that because she, so she, she's kind of a fun story. She was the mother of Mike Nesmith, who turned out to be one of the monkeys in the 1960s, which people don't necessarily make that connection. I actually interviewed Mike Nesmith for my, for my book um, to talk about his mom. His mom was a single mom. She um, was a secretary, and the electric typewriter had just come out. And for women who were secretaries, going from a manual typewriter, which you know you can hit those keys and you can realize you hit the wrong key, change your mind before it maybe hits the paper. With a typewriter, the electric typewriter, it was soft touch. The minute you hit that key, it hit the paper. So secretaries were making tons of mistakes and having to basically throw the sheet of paper away and retype letters. It was very time consuming. She had been an artist in her spare time and she said, what do artists do when they make mistakes? They paint white over it. So she created in her little kitchen this little white product that you could type over your mistake and make the mistakes disappear. She called it mistake out um, and eventually became liquid paper. And it was a multi-million dollar business oh, by gotcha. the 1970s. In the 50s, when she did it, um, she signed all of her paperwork just with her first initial because people didn't want to do business with women entrepreneurs. So she just signed everything B. Nesmith. And of course, they thought they were doing business with a man, fell in love with the product, realized it was a woman, continued to buy it. Um, that's a pretty typical story. She sold her business to Gillette in... Um, I think the 1970, late 70s for $22 million, which is a ton of money in the late oh, 70s. Oh, yeah, it's probably worth about $200 million now. And she did what a lot of women entrepreneurs did. She set up um, community spaces in the business. She, she showcased um, workers' art. 
she had like a gallery she had you know um, gardens where people could go for lunch and just have a peaceful place to meditate and eat and um, this was not the way to you know typical male corporations were run in this time period this is what women were doing um, my other favorite was Mary Crowley who devout sort of Baptist Christian who held business meetings of, with a Bible on her lap um, and you know still felt that like women could do anything she wanted to empower women mostly mothers like herself she was the one who um, ran home interiors uh, which was a one of those businesses where women would have parties at home and sell decorating products and again a multi-billion a million dollar excuse me corporation um, at the time of her death Lillian Vernon is another famous name um, Debbie Fields Mrs. Fields cookies which was very big oh, in yeah. the 70s and 80s and even Still into the today. 90s yeah, yeah. Um, she's not involved anymore but there were so many of these businesses that um, started I think of also Ruth I can never say this Ruth's Chris's Steakhouse you We've all heard of that. Oh, yeah, I've been there. It's a great restaurant. So she bought Chris's Steakhouse in 1960-something, mid-60s, 65, I think, as a divorced mom, single mom, and she didn't have the money to send her kid to college. And she said, well, I'm getting some child support, some money, but not enough. She got a job and wasn't enough. So she mortgaged her house, bought the Steakhouse, and the condition was she had to keep it Chris's Steakhouse, and she had to keep it in the original location. When that location um, needed to change, she added the Ruth. So that's why it has this weird name that's hard sometimes to say. Um, but it was, and you know, it's a huge chain. It's very successful. Um, was successful right away. And it was all because she, you know, all of these women had a problem they wanted to solve, either personally or in the world and their jobs. And um, that's how they got these business ideas that became huge. And we don't talk about them as much in our world. Um, all of them are started on shoestrings. I mean, Lillian Vernon took $2,000 of her wedding money to start her business, and she made a monogram belt and a handbag that sold to teenagers. Um, and she thought she'd make a, you know, make back the money in a little bit more, and she ended up making, you know, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars on the first order. So that became this ma ma massive catalog business. Um, so, but in her case too, it was my husband makes a good living, but not enough for the life I want. But now I want my kids to travel. I want my kids to go to college. I want them to have piano lessons. So I'll make up the difference. So there's a lot of those kinds of stories that yeah. people don't realize are are out there. That's a fascinating story. Tell, tell me a little bit. How did you get into the topic? I mean, what's your background that kind of led you here? Because this is a very unique topic that actually has, from a research standpoint, such repercussions. Because it is, it is the story of America in many ways. It really is. Um, if you had told me I would be writing about this like 20 years ago, I would have told you you were out of your mind. I mean, I went to grad school and I wanted to study feminism. That was it. I was really interested in activism and social movements. But as an undergrad, I was a journalism major. And I worked my very first job out of college at Business Week. Um, most of the uh, stories I did for them were in the 80s, late 80s, about women who were starting to open businesses. Um, I interviewed uh, Jim Cook, who owns uh, Sam Adams, before he started his, his brewery and actually ran the two names by me that he was considering. And of course, I stink at titles, so I picked the wrong one. Um, he was debating between uh, New World Boston Lager and Samuel Adams Boston Lager. And of course, I picked New World because I thought Sam Adams was corny. Uh, so there's that story, right? Not good at that. But I was writing about that. I was writing about women who were starting wine businesses and mothers who were leaving the workplace to start businesses because they were not mother-friendly. Um, and then I went to New York and worked for Women's Wear Daily 
um, and W Magazine and was writing about the business of fashion. And um, again, not what I thought I would be doing, but those were the jobs. It was an amazing job, um, an amazing training ground. I was there writing about fashion during the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Um, so I remember, for example, having to call Halston's brother when he was, you know, sick and dying yeah. to confirm that. And I'm in my 20s and I don't want to be doing that at all. Um, and learning about how people like Halston and some and a very um, nice woman entrepreneur lost the rights to their names when they sold their businesses. So they could not ever do anything else under their own name. So as these kinds of stories are you know happening and I'm writing about these things, um, I interviewed um, Ivana Trump when she was um, taking the helm of the plaza when she was still married. Um, and about what her business vision was. So I, I kept kind of getting slowly pulled into these stories of women who were in the workplace having different challenges. Um, and I really wanted to write for Ms. So I, I approached the editor of Ms. and said, I want to write for you. And she said, you write a lot about business. We came up with the idea that I would write an article about women entrepreneurs who hired their husbands and this gender role reversal that happened. It came out in 1989, and the day this magazine hits the stands, and on the radio is, Ms. Magazine is out of business. So I don't think anyone in the world ever saw <laughs> that issue of Ms. It was on the stands, but no one bought yeah. it because they thought the magazine's out of business. I have tons of copies if anybody wants to see them. It was a fun article. In almost every case, the men had to be in charge at home if she was in charge at work. You could really see this gender tension that you don't get when women go to work for their husbands. They don't say, I'm, I'm the boss at home because he's the boss at work. That started to really intrigue me. And, so, and I was in grad school at the same time, and I started to think, maybe there's a project here. Um, and more and more, I started doing work on black beauty shop owners and how their businesses were connected to activism, how they helped elect Kennedy um, by hiding in plain sight in the South, right? Be they're, they're organizing in a beauty shop, but no one knows they're organizing because they're in a beauty shop, right? So you could use your business for these multiple purposes. That starts to really fascinate me. And then I, and then I start to do work in grad school around feminist entrepreneurship which again, you would never have expected. And there are all these women's bookstores and you know, feminist credit unions and women's banks. And, and that's it, I was in love. And no one's written really in, about, people have written about pieces of this story about individual entrepreneurs or about black beauty shop owners, but nobody's said, what does all this mean for the bigger picture of women's entrepreneurship? How is this a, a bigger story? And so this will be the first book. Um, that does a kind of survey history of women's entrepreneurship, the book I'm writing. And, and it borrows from that Ms. Magazine. Um, the title is She's the Boss. And that was the title of my Ms. Magazine article that no one saw in 1989. Well, I think a lot of people will see the book now. <laughs> yes, I hope so. I hope so. That's great. So um, what, um, how did you get here at this point in life at Merrimack College? What, the route to get here seems um, unique. Yeah, it's it is. I'm not a traditional academic, right? I didn't do the the path of going straight through. I I really kind of um, oh, waited, watched what where the road led, watched which doors opened, and I've always believed that you should think about, pay really close attention to your reaction to everything that happens to you. The things that bored me, you know, I moved away from, and the things that kind of intrigued me, those are the things I followed. Um, I moved, I was, I grew up in New England and I moved back here. Um, I was teaching at NYU um, as an adjunct and came back here in 2003 and said, I need to find an academic community. Um, and I 
actually reached out to Gordine McKenzie, who was the yep. chair of Women's and Gender Studies at the time, and said, I'd love to teach for you or at least talk to you and come to some of your events. And she hired me, and I adjuncted here for a long time, as you know. Um, and I don't know. This has been my home ever since. I, I love our students. I, I love this campus. It's a really special place. Um, so that's how I got Good. here. Well, we're lucky to have you, so. Oh, well, thank Which you. Which is terrific. Um, so, so you've built this kind of research portfolio. You've become known in this area. You're a pretty popular professor here at Merrimack. We know that. Thank you. Um, so recently you were asked to consult um, a scholarly group for the Congressional Commission for the Proposed American Museum of Women's History. Talk a little bit about that and that experience and how you got to that and what is that like in Washington? I, yeah, well, <laughs> I was invited to be part of that because um, – it, from 1998 to 2000, I was the content director for the very first women's museum that ever opened in this country, um, which was in Dallas. It was a women's history museum. Um, that was a crazy experience because it was New York versus Dallas. The consulting firm was from New York, but so we were dealing with Texas culture and and right and New York culture, and they didn't always meet. I got to meet Governor Ann Richards, who was on the advisory board for that. But I was, I, I mean, I was responsible for all of the content. And there were a lot of politics around the content about things that Texans did not want to see that they wanted to erase from the history uh, um, of, of women's history in the museum. And I'm pretty passionate about women's history. You can't rewrite the past. The past is the past. So there was some tension around that. So because I was the only person um, who had ever done this. I was invited first to write an article for the online National Women's History Museum about women's entrepreneurship. And then that's that's how people came to be known that I had a museum background. And then I was invited to be part of the scholar working group for this um, effort to not just have an, an online women's museum, but an, a national physical museum on the mall in Washington, potentially a Smithsonian institution. Um, there was a congressional commission of eight women, half conservative, half liberal, um, and they wanted a scholar group to advise them on, do we need this? How do we convince the public? How do we convince Congress? Um, we had to convince them first. So there, we organized into a bunch of different, uh, I would say about four or five different um, scholar working groups and created um, possible exhibits. So I worked on one with Alalia Bundles, who is the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, um, who was the first black woman millionaire in America. And we did something on women in finance and r women's relationship to the money and business. Um, we created a, a potential exhibit. But I kind of became the conscience of the, of the working group because every time, you know, scholars want to do what they want to do, right? We want to do this very provocative work. But if you want to sell a museum to Congress, how provocative can you be, right? Not, not very. Right. So... <laughs> I kept saying to them, look, been where you are, done this already, we need to sell the museum first, then we can talk about what kinds of buttons we can push once we're, we're in there. There was a lot of fear and there was a lot of media coverage on, is this going to be just a feminist agenda kind of driven museum? And while I would love that, I don't, I don't think A, that that's what women's history is, and B, I don't think that that would ever get us a women's museum. So I kept saying, don't do anything that's going to empower people who will discredit what we are trying to do. We need to be very politic about this. Um, and so they would tease me and say, here comes our conscience again. Um, but I think that that was the very sort of useful role I got to play in, in that group. And we, we all uh, contributed to a 150-page report that went to this eight-member commission who then did, in fact, recommend 
um, that Congress, um, now this was of course at the end of the Obama administration, so who knows where this is going now, but there, the recommendation in 2016, 17 was that we do need an American Women's History Museum oh, great. in DC, so well, stay you tuned. You played a very pragmatic role there. I, that, that, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's important work, that's right? That's good to hear. So, so um, I, um, this March is the 100th anniversary of the, the um, the women's suffrage movement. Talk a little bit about that as a, not just simply as a scholar of women's studies, but as a, a woman, as a professor, and a little bit how you see that, that how your anniversary, I mean, in some ways we've come a long way, in some ways we haven't, um, depending on what what lens you look through. Um, That's true. But but talk a little bit about, just from your own experiences, what, what, what March means to you and what this event, and what are you doing on campus? around this so much there um so it is the 100th anniversary it's also a very big election year and there's been a lot of talk about um how this election year women will um there's a big gender gap right now in how women are going to vote so in many ways women have the potential right now in this election year to do what the original suffragists hoped women's voting rights would do, which is influence an election in ways that are meaningful to women and to families and to everyone. But, you know, when when women first fought for the right to vote, um, it took 72 years to get it. And many of those later suffragists really thought that the, the, the vote would mean instant equality. And it didn't. I mean, the day after you get the suffrage amendment, you still have lots of gender inequality. Not every woman votes. Um, not every woman votes uniquely and not as her husband or family members might instruct her or advise her to vote. Um, so it didn't have the initially the power they hoped for, but, but it, it quickly does. And, and I hope in this year of the centennial that we as women, even though we are all different and we don't always vote as a block, I, I just hope women realize that power, especially young women, because the they have more power than they think and many of them don't go to the polls because they yeah. don't think their voices are heard yeah. um and i say that a lot in my classes i say if you don't vote you will, won't be heard right and we talk a lot about how women starved themselves to ensure that women got the right to suffrage because they were imprisoned and for protesting um we talk a lot about how um People were jailed for the right to vote. So people sacrificed a great deal for women to have this right. And even in the last election, um, there were people questioning whether women should have the right to vote. I mean, really? Yes, it came up during the 2016 election. People say maybe women's vote should be taken away. And, you know, it's, it's the yahoos on the fringe who are saying this, but, but it's still being said even now. So, I, you know, it's an important right. And I actually think. Um, that the the women, the early suffragists were right, that if you don't have this basic measure of citizenship, you can never hope to attain any other kind of equality in society. Well, um, I'm working with Gabby Womack in the library. We're doing a Women's History Month event. Um, we did one last year. Um, it's very student-centered. Everything I do is very student-centered. So we're profiling student work. My students last semester in the Women's History class, um, one group did Wikipedia entries. So we have um, a group of Merrimack students who wrote entries for Wikipedia that are live, and we're going to make posters out of them and put them in the library so folks can see what our students did. They're, it was a struggle. Wikipedia has its own language, and students were very frustrated trying to learn Wikipedia language. Um, but 
I kept telling them all semester, you will hate this process and love what you achieve. And they all actually said that's exactly what, what the experience was. I took a Wikipedia training, so I know I knew all of their frustrations that Wikipedia just has its own unique verbiage and technology. Um, the other group did posters on women in technology. They did posters related to women's and relationship to household technology, to military, communications, transportation, workplace technologies. My students in the women's history honors class this spring are going to look at Massachusetts and suffrage. And we're going to create digital timelines about um, Massachusetts doesn't, it's, it's a very liberal state today, but it does not pass um, its own suffrage law. Uh, it only ratifies the constitutional amendment in 1919, um, where Wyoming has a suffrage law in 1869. Massachusetts has not. So yeah, no, it's, it was a very conservative state the most conservative throughout most of its history. It's, it's interesting how the world changes, but you know, it was the traditional English, you know, Puritan kind of world and uh, Protestant. And know. a huge anti-suffrage movement. Yeah. So we're gonna go to Mass Historical and work with the actual documents that, that you know, the posters and the papers and the anti-suffrage and the pro-suffrage documents. We're gonna look at the history of women, um, because once you get the vote, now you need to be on juries. So we're gonna look at um, Massachusetts um, efforts to get jury, uh, women's on, women on juries, which doesn't happen until 1957. Um, 1957, wow. That's recent, right? I mean, not to the students necessarily, but to any yeah, of us I'm who. A, I'm a child of the <laughs> 60s, but. But yeah, that wasn't I'm not too many years beyond that. So, right. Yeah, so looking at what what does the vote, um, what do women do when they can't vote? We're going to have students look at timelines about when yeah. you don't have the right to vote, how do you politically empower yourself? So there'll be an, a big event um, showcasing student work, which we did last year as well, and students loved it. Um, we will have Take Note. Uh, hopefully they'll come back again this year, which is the female a cappella group come and sing during this presentation. Yeah. Um, we had uh, Christy Potroff and Ellen McWhorter in the English department and their students who are working on the Anne Bradstreet Fellows Project showcase their work. Um, I will outreach to all of my colleagues anything that they're doing or their students are doing that should be part of this. We want to we want to showcase. Um, so that's really the big plan. Terrific. That, that, that sounds exciting for our students in the department. Um, so, so we um, at Merrimack, we have a tradition of the first lecture and the last lecture, right? And the last lecture, keynote speaker is always a faculty member. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, the first speaker is always a senior. I think that's um, right. And uh, I think it's always been a senior, once in a while a junior, but mostly seniors. Um, but, but tell us a little bit about that discussion and that talk and the message you tried to get across to students. I, I, I wasn't able to go, but I heard it was a great talk and people really enjoyed it. That's nice to hear, thank you. Um, that is a really wild and, and amazing experience to give that. Um, it's overwhelming. I tend to be a person who kind of keeps her head down, does her work. Um, I don't talk a lot about myself beyond, I mean, I'm an open book, but I don't go out of the way to, to, to put myself out there. And, and so it was interesting. You have to revisit your life in some ways and think about how you got here and the path you took. I wanted to connect um, a couple of threads. I wanted students to, I wanted to use my life to show students that they are more important and powerful as historical actors and agents than they realize. And so, and I wanted to do that in a way that didn't feel like it was a classroom conversation, but in a way that felt engaging. So, um, you know, I've had many events, as most people have, that make you realize that you never know when the last time is the last time. And I'm a, I'm a breast cancer survivor. 
I lived through 9-11 in New York City. I've, you know, lost both my sister when she was young and my dad. So I've had a lot of those moments where you have this sense of a before and after. And I'm always conscious of the fact that, like, I didn't know the last Christmas I spent with my sister was the last Christmas I would spend with her and so on. So I do go into the, every classroom thinking this could be my last lecture. So it was really hard for me to think of one single topic when you approach life that way, like this might be my last moment. Um, and I talked about that a little bit, uh, but I also wanted them to see, when I teach my women's history class, I say to them right at the beginning, what is the background noise of your life? And by that, I don't just mean the music and the films that they, you know, and the streaming videos and the things, but also what's going on in the world that you don't think is affecting you, but is. Is it South Korea? Is it the Trump presidency? You know, is it the environmental issues? What are the issues that, what are the things that even if you're not engaged with them, they really are shaping you and your times and your relationship to the world. And they spend a lot of the semester thinking about that. I wanted to bring that conversation to the last lecture. And so I used my story to show how the world I grew up in shaped the choices that I made, how I engaged with history, even if I was like our students, not always consciously engaging with, with the history, and how it got me to this sort of moment, and to think of themselves that way, that you are a force for change, and that every decision you make, great or small, changes the world around you. If you, if you don't eat meat, if you engage in you know, good environmental practices or bad environment, if you don't use straws, right? You think these are inconsequential choices, but they're not. They add up and they shape an entire generation. And so I wanted them to think about that. And I talked a little about Greta Thunberg and the ways in which, you know, here's a child who has shaped, right, our consciousness around some issues. That if you live a life that's true to your sense of self and your sense of values, um, then you are shaping the world around you. And so that was really sort of the essence of the, of the conversation. That's great. I have two more areas I want to focus on with you uh, for a few minutes as, as as we've um, actually gone by quickly at the time. Um, I want to talk a bit about the Women's Studies Department and the creation of that and where it's going and you know, um, and how that is a, 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 an area that's actually grown here. Um, and second, I want to talk about the, 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 the young women on campus and their futures and what does it look like going forward. Um, since you know, we are all um, creatures of our experiences mm. and the moments of time we live in, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I am shaped by my birth in 1965 in the 70s and 80s. Um, more than actually as I get older, more I, I realize I am shaped by those times. Even though half the time I don't remember them, they do come back, right? But at the same time, you know, this generation that's here at Merrimack now is fundamentally different than even a decade ago and will be different than the decade going forward. Um, but before we get to that topic of the uh, of our students, let's talk about the department and where it's going and the creation of that and your involvement over the last couple of years. And you've been an adjunct and now you're on a, a tenure track position up for tenure pretty soon. You've, you've been terrific. But talk a little bit about that experience um, and, and also a bit about, you know, you were, you've been a professional for many years and an academic on the side and you jumped in uh, feet first uh, as a full-time academic. Talk about that experience, but the department, where it's going and, and it's really just in its infancy in some ways. It really is. Uh, I mean, it is and it isn't, right? So it's been here since around 2000, um, founded by an amazingly um, passionate and committed group of women, including Marie Plass and, and um, um, Elaine Donovan, who we've created a, an award that we give out to students every year in her name. Um, 
who really felt like many women did who started women's studies departments at other institutions that we weren't learning about ourselves. You know, you, you can get a great education, but um, there was no history. There was there are a lot of topics that don't address um, gender at all. Um, when I came here, there was just the minor as an adjunct. And um, I actually, as an adjunct, helped create several courses that we now teach because they were things I just felt, like the women in business class that, that I felt we had to have, or the women's history class I also created. It's my, my favorite class to teach. Um, and in 2015, we got a major. Um, I wasn't, I was again still adjuncting, um, but that was the beginning, I think, of the real dramatic change that we're seeing in, in our department now. Uh, Marie and Gordine, when they wrote the major proposal, talked um, about expecting, I think, somewhere between 12 and 15 majors. Um, we have 15 majors right now and 25 um, minors with many more who are um, telling me they're coming in in January, so we'll see. Um, I think we had about 19 majors. We graduated a lot of them in May, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of minors as well in May. And um, so this in some ways was, I was thinking as I came into the, um, the semester in the fall that this was a kind of rebuilding year. We had graduated so many students. And usually around advising time, we get lots of new majors and minors. This year, we got them all in the first few weeks of the semester which is unusual, and, and I think tells you, and tells me anyway, how fast and important this area is growing. Um, you know, we are in the age of Me Too, and um, people are very sensitive, and should be, about uh, gender issues, inequalities. Um, so I'm getting more students who I don't have to convince that this is valuable, they come in knowing it's valuable. And I think that's the real shift we're seeing. When I've gone to open houses and other things, I have to explain how you use this. Now people come up to me and say, I get it. Um, I know why this is important. I know I can do diversity and inclusion work if I study this. Um, my favorite moment in the last two years was um, we have men who are also WGS majors and minors. And we had a young man who was a business major and a WGS minor who graduated last May, came into my office and said, you know, I just got a job, and the woman who hired me said she hired me because I was a WGS minor, and because I, she said because of my minor, she knew I, I got it, meaning, and he translated, that I wouldn't be any trouble, that I understood how to treat people in the workplace, that I understood how to be fair and, and you know, treat people based on talent and abilities and, and their humanity, um, and he, I said to him, well, I've been telling you this for four years. And he said, I know, but you were right. You, you were actually right. This, got, this helped get me a job. Um, that's the message we want our students to hear, that, that if you do this work, you can do anything with it. It's not, you know, it's not like a business degree or a journalism degree like I had where you can see there's a direct profession that correlates to it. It's a degree that you can apply to any profession. Um, and so that's helped, I think, our department grow. I think it's interesting to watch students when they come in to sign up for a major or minor because for some of them it's a political decision and so there's a little inner tug of war going on about it and for some they plunge right in like of course I've been dying to do this one student signed up as a major last semester on her birthday as a symbolic gesture um, so I thought that was really wonderful um, so yeah the end of the department is, is growing we are doing more and more again student-centered things students know they can come and study in my office if they need a quiet place or a safe place um, to study and they do come by and study in my office sometimes and um, we've got a, a lunchtime series we call eat which is an acronym for everyday acts uh, everyday acts 
everyday activism talks, sorry. Um, and it's where the students can share what they're doing. So we had a student who was in South Korea for the summer, very interested in the work around comfort women who were the enslaved women yeah. by the Japanese military in World War II, um, came in and shared her stories um, about that. We Basically, we give them lunch and we talk about what they're doing that's interesting, that relates to gender work. I want to do more of those kinds of things. That's the, great. the department's growing. I would love to do a certificate or something with leadership. We yeah. created the. We've talked about that a little bit, yeah, and I'm sure that's coming down the pike pretty soon. I hope Gotta so. Gotta get you tenure first, and then. Yes, we'll exactly, exactly. But we have the first course on gender diversity yeah. and leadership, which I, you know, students are beating down the door to try and take, and yeah. we're going to send students um, to shadow women um, and people of color who are in leadership positions. Great. Um, and interview them about how they overcame obstacles to be leaders, what they face daily around issues of bias and, and implicit bias in particular. Um, so there's, yeah, lots well, of that's great. cool things going that's on. Terrific. Tell me a little bit now, you know, um, to kind of wrap up, um, you know, I have the saying, you, you can't predict the future, but you can plan for it. Um, but, you know, in, in predicting or thinking about the future, where do you see... Um, women's studies going like like what 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 is 10 15 years down the road in terms of the issues the topics you know i, I worry sometimes um that it it people take stuff for granted now right that it's it's in, in some ways we have the me too at the same time i don't see the same level of activism you see 20 years 30 years ago right i mean trump was elected and you had that kind of moment right but it, but it really hasn't really built it's it, it it's it's it i don't say it's stopped but life takes over people's time but what do you see happening down the road not just in activism but just in the topics the issues public policy whatever area you want to talk about how do you see life for merrimack students today what do you see the 18 year old of 10 15 years from now studying talking about beyond just the history but what do you see that's, well, that's interesting. There's a lot there. I mean, part of it goes back to your earlier question about who our students are. And um, after the Trump election, um, I taught a gender and political um, movements class. And I was nervous about that because I, the election didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. And that class would have been a very different class if the election went the way I thought it was going to go. So now I was nervous. I thought there would be people in that room kind of gunning for me. Um, and instead, it was the exact opposite experience. I've never had a class where more students identified without being asked that they were feminists. Um, this generation, this Gen Z, iGen, whatever we want to call them, is pretty angry. Um, there are a lot of other things that we, we know about, but they're pretty angry. They, uh, male and female. Absolutely. They understand that they're inheriting a lot of garbage that other generations created, and they're not happy about it. Um, I've waited 20 years for these kids, honestly. I mean, teaching millennials, you know, was great, but they weren't angry about anything. They just thought everything's fine. It'll all work itself out. We, you know, we'll be fine. The past was bad. The present's going to be okay. These kids aren't sure that the future or present are, are okay, is okay, and they're not happy about what they're inheriting. Those kids are exciting to teach. And, you know, those those um, students went to the Women's March after the mm -hmm. um election and are going to the marches every January. There'll be another one. I, I know what you're saying about activism. Um, the problem with activism has always been that you can stand out in protest. And I've gone to many of these kinds of demonstrations myself. My students laugh because I say I'm, I've yet to be arrested for a cause I believe in, get the bail money ready. But 
I, the problem with activism is what do you do after you stand there and, and hold a sign? Like, where does that go, right? It doesn't necessarily mean Congress will vote any differently, although you hope it does. It doesn't necessarily mean anything has really changed except that your voice was heard. And that, that, that's not insignificant, but people want to see forces for change. I think this generation, and I'm not sure how long we're gonna have this angry eye Gen, Gen Z with us, I think they are really the hope for the future. I mean, I think they're, they're, we're going to see more activism even on this campus. I see it in my office. I can't, like I said to you, we had more students sign up as majors and minors in the first few weeks of school, which has never happened because they are already coming in looking for a place where it's, where it's, they can address the questions that they're upset about. And that's what we do in women's and gender studies. So I don't know that we'll ever be an enormous department at Merrimack College, but I think we will always be a growing department, at least in the foreseeable future, as long as we have a generation that is curious and looking for the answers to the inequalities they see around them. Yeah, well, I think this generation is less broad brush, more precision in how they want to learn, right? And I think areas like women's studies, social justice, where those used to be carried through sociology are no longer carried through the, the sociology or psychology. They're actually carried more through the kind of more the micro issues um, because people are trying to find meaning within their own study. Absolutely. Um, you know, and we I, give them that. I mean, if you've never, do. you know, if you've never studied anything about gender and you take a gender class, that can be eye opening yeah. for you. And this is a class now that's less uh, class. This is a generation less less concerned about foundational skills, mm-hmm. and more interested in specific skills or specific understanding because they have so much knowledge at their fingertips. They do. You know, uh, you know, I have a son who's a computer science and he has decided to change his major to math because he can learn computer science on his own. And, and that's not an uncommon thing now, right? That's I, right. I, I hear this all the time amongst our students of why should I study this when this is something that interests me. And, and, and interests have become a much more powerful tool, which gives me great hope for this generation because it's great that people have all these foundational skills, but ultimately protesting doesn't actually change anything. What really changes is running for office, running a company, using your resources for change, uh, whether that be the time or the power or, or, or the dollars you make to do that. And and, and, I, and I do see this upcoming generation not interested just in talking about it, but actually interested in changing it, which is different than the millennium generation, even different totally from the generation different. X, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. It, it, and I do think protesting is, is really important. It raises awareness. It, it, it lets you find people who feel as you do. So there's a collectivism that can happen around protesting, right? You, you can speak in one voice. You know you're not alone in what you're feeling. Um, and it can lead to change. But it, in and of itself, is not the mechanism for yeah. change. It is the beginning of the conversation that leads to the change. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's important. And you're right. I think these students are, you know, you and I have talked about the pressures in higher ed today, right? And the demands that we graduate students into good-paying jobs. And when you are in a discipline like women's and gender studies, it's a little harder sell, right? Because I can't say this will land you in a bank. It's not an obvious trajectory. But um, I think, so we live in this weird time where there's this pressure on higher ed, but the students aren't putting that pressure on us. The students want what you said. They want to study what they're interested in. They want to grow um, as people. And I think that because they're also coming of age in a decent economy, unlike the the generation that I taught here during the the Great Recession, right, who 
um, first time I ever heard students say, I just want to get a job when I graduate. I don't care what it is. Um, this generation expects to get a job. So they're not so much worried about the direct correlation between what I study and what it translates into in the job market. They're interested in becoming smart enough to get a good job. Yeah. And so that gives them the, the, the ability to say, this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I want to study. It does. They also are looking for many choices. And so I think actually the double major, the double minor, I mean, that's where I see the future hired going is everybody wants more choice now. I think that's and, right. And curriculum in itself actually limits choice. Uh, that's the oddity of curriculum. Right? We talk about how it's, it opens one's mind and makes you think differently. But what kids are really looking for is a lot more breadth. That's right. And, and so women's studies, social justice, accounting combined with leadership would be an interesting set of areas to study um, because n any one of them, because of all the changes in technology and tools, you don't have to have the depth anymore because t other tools will help you with that. It's really the breadth to understand and, and connect the dots. And, and understand their world and be able to yeah. function in, yeah. in, in their world. Absolutely. And I think that's right. I think they do want a more of a tailor-made I'm going to just yeah. define and design the person I want to be, and I want the curriculum and the and the and the path I take to fall yeah. into that. We see this in medicine. Mm -hmm. We see this in shopping. We see this in in career choices. Absolutely. We see this almost in everything. Is that choice, which is the ultimate American ideal, right? Right. Uh, that choice, because of technology, because of the economy, has become a big a big deal to kids and. And this is, the, I think, the major change for higher ed. And I think that the trend you're talking about with double majors is real, double majors plus a minor, um, which enables them to actually say, I want to do women's and gender studies and math because I see myself becoming, say, an economist who studies these kinds of yeah. group, these populations. Yeah. They, they're ha making those very deliberate, conscious choices. Yeah. And sometimes you just want to learn about something but also not be left out of something. That's right. You know, there's a, this whole generation is about not being left out. That's right. That, that we bring everybody together with us. So it is a fascinating, and I do think women's studies is, is one of those topics that I think um, has an endearing value because it is, it is, at the end of the day, it's about learning about yourself. It is. And in a generation. And your world. In your world. And in a generation that's looking to learn more inward in a kind of a, a kind of a, because with anxiety and all the changes going on and all the pressures, that, that better understanding actually leads to something else. And they, let's face it, we all have a gender, <laughs> so, right? So it's really personal in the same time that, and, and, and I think a lot of our students haven't had a chance to address the, the fact that they have a gender because we get socialized, we become who we are, we don't think much about it, and then one day you take a class and, and you say, wait a minute, so that's how that happened. Well, yeah, I mean, not, not to get theoretical, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we've always looked at inequality as a society more or less a lot of times by, by, by race and less by gender. But, but the reality is, is there's so many forms of inequality now, right? That's right. Uh, gender, ethnicity. Um, religion, uh, religion race. Um, yeah. You know, even, even mental health now. I mean, you know, the definitions of, uh, uh, you know, and the, the biases have been quite broadened in society purposely and rightly. Mm -hmm. um, but it does make people much more aware of Who's who's being left behind, or who's not being treated the same way? That's right. Um, and I do think that's the. I don't want to use the word social justice. That's the fairness of this generation. And honestly, in you know, in some ways, women's and gender studies is um, 
it, this is the place where actually we tackle all of those things. We don't exclusively look at women, I mean, yeah. right? We look at all, everything we do is about difference. I mean, it's really the place where we study difference and how difference functions in society on all of the levels you just met, mentioned. We do look at disability. We look at the ways in which all of these thin, things intersect race, class, Yep. religion, nationality, um, sexual identity, gender identity, all the way, all of these things intersect with each other and form the way in which you interact with the world and the world interacts And they with are you. the big topics of our society now. Yes. Um, and the things that are driving almost every other decision, whether it be in business, whether it be in government, whether it be in, 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 in local communities, it, it has become the topic. And, and kind of the polarization of those topics is what we all experience but the deeper root of that isn't you know this is why education is so important absolutely so well deb i want to really i appreciate the time today it's a great you. conversation and uh it's great to have you here and congratulations you. on all your hard work and your new book and uh thank you. we're looking forward to seeing it and have a little book opening so congratulations oh, i appreciate that thank you thank i've enjoyed you so being much. here thanks i appreciate it thanks bye-bye bye.